the Dyatlov Pass is probably one of the greatest mountain mysteries in somewhat recent times. And if you haven't heard of this story yet, well, you're in for a treat. The truth is, this incident is so well documented up until the time of everything going wrong that the mind-boggling part is the simplest explanation could be the right one. But for many, the simplest explanation just doesn't add up. You might just leave this episode a full-blown conspiracy theorist like a lot of people who hear this tragic tale. I'm your host, Tatiana, and this is Occurrence. So the Dyatlov Pass incident is actually named after one of the hikers on the expedition. Igor Dyatlov, and forgive me because while I work with and for native-born Russians and Ukrainians, I still struggle with their languages, but I will do my best not to butcher this. So, a group was formed for a skiing expedition and led by Igor Dyatlov, a radio engineering student at Ural Polytechnical Institute in what was the Soviet Union at the time. Almost everyone in the group were graduate students and taking a break from their studies. The group was made up of eight men and two women. Besides Igor, there was Yuri Doroshenko, who was impulsive and reserved, but brave, and said to have chased off a bear once to help fellow adventurers. There was Ludmila Dubinina, and she was a fourth-year student and the youngest in the group. There was Georgi Krivoshenko, and he was the joker of the group and always tagged along with Igor's trips. Alexander Kolevatov was a fourth-year student, and he had just celebrated his birthday on January 30th, only two days before this trip. Nikolai Theo Bernoulles graduated in 1958 as a civil engineer, and he was very popular still around campus and very well-known. Zenaida Kolmogorova was a fifth-year student, and she was said to be the engine of the university due to her ideas, outgoing personality, and being so well-liked. Rustem Slobodin had graduated in 1958 too, and he was known as being adventurous and a man of few words. Semyon Zolotorov was an instructor and the oldest in the group, and he went by Sasha. He served in the military and joined the expedition by recommendations of member of the sports team. And then there was Yuri Yudin, and he was the sole survivor of this trip. They were all experienced hikers, so the trip should have been manageable and doable for everyone. The purpose of the trip was to upgrade their certifications because everyone was a grade two with ski instructor certifications and would become grade three upon returning from the trip. At the time, grade three was the highest certification in the Soviet Union and it required people to have traversed 190 miles to obtain it. Their goal was to make it to Ortorin, about 10 miles away from where the incident takes place. It was considered a difficult time of year to hike because in February it was the thick of winter, but with the amount of experience between everyone in the group, it was not believed to be anything too intense for them to do. The route was designed by Igor's group to reach the far northern regions of the Sverdlovsk and the upper streams of a river nearby. The city route commission approved the route and they confirmed a group of 10 people on January 8th of 1959. On the 23rd, the group was given their route book and listed their course as following the number five trail. And they actually left the city on that same day they received the route book. At the time, it listed approval for 11 people. The 11th person was Simeon, who was previously supposed to go with another expedition of similar difficulty, but like I said before, was suggested to join this group through the sports team at the school. So everyone arrived by train to Ivedel, a town at the center of the Northern province, 
on the early morning of January 25th. They then took a truck to Vijhai, which was a lorry village that is the last inhabited settlement up north. While spending the night there, the skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. And on the 27th, they began their trek towards Gora Otoran. The next day, Yuri Yudin, who had several health ailments, which were a heart defect and rheumatism, turned back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue with the journey. But before leaving, Igor said that he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to the lorry village that they were at before. This should have happened no later than February 12th, but Igor told Yudin before he left the group that he actually expected to take a little longer. And this would be a key factor in the tragedy to follow. So the remaining nine hikers continued on their journey, and multiple people in the group had diaries and cameras and documented very clearly all the group's activities leading up to the day prior to everything going wrong. On the 31st, the group arrived at the starting point and prepared to climb. They stored their extra food and equipment that would be used for the trip back, and the next day, they started to move through the pass. The plan was for them to get over the pass and make camp the next night on the opposite side, but because of snowstorms and limited visibility, they got lost and veered west, towards the top of Colat. When they realized their mistake, the group decided to set up camp on the slope of the mountain instead of moving less than a mile downhill to a forest that would have had better shelter from the weather. It was speculated that Igor either wanted to practice camping on the mountain slope, or he just didn't want to lose the altitude that they gained. So, the 12th passed and no messages had been received, but there was no immediate reaction. Because remember, Igor told Yuri he expected to be late. But by February 20th, no one had heard from the group, so the relatives demanded a rescue operation, and the head of the institute sent a volunteer group of fellow students and teachers Later, the army and police joined, providing helicopters and planes for the effort. And on the 26th, the searchers found the group's abandoned and damaged tent. The campsite threw everyone for a loop, right? Because it was half-torn and covered with snow. It was empty, and everyone's belongings and shoes were left behind. The tent had been cut open from the inside, with nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks, a single shoe, or completely barefoot could be followed. The footprints went to the edge of a nearby wood on the opposite side of the path, so away from where they should have been trying to go, less than a mile northeast. And after about 1,600 feet, the tracks were covered with snow. At the edge of the forest, under a large Siberian pine, the searchers found the remains of a small fire. And near the fire were the first two bodies. They were Georgie and Yuri Durushenko. The initial scene showed them to be shoeless and dressed only in underwear. The branches on the trees were broken up to five meters high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something, maybe looking for the camp. Between the tree and the camp, the searchers found three more bodies. They were Igor, Zeneda, and Rustem, who died in a way that suggested that they were trying to get back to camp. They were found at various distances, ranging from 980 feet to a little over 2,000 feet from the tree. An investigation started immediately after the first five bodies were found by the tree. The medical examiner found no injuries that might have led to their deaths, and it was concluded that they all died from hypothermia. But I'm going to go through and go over how they were found. So, Yuri was a brownish-purple color, and he had no shoes on, just wool socks on both feet, with the left sock being burnt. 
He had liver mortis spots on the back of his neck and torso, suggesting his body had been moved after death. His ears, nose, and lips were covered with blood, and there was a foamy gray fluid on his right cheek. And prior to his death, it was speculated that something or someone was pressing on his chest. It was similar to the impact of a car accident. There were suspicions that it could have been an interrogation method by secret police or special forces, or just from falling from the tree. But strangely, that theory was left out of the autopsy report. Now, Georgie was found in his undershirt with a long sleeve shirt on top. He was wearing swimming pants, long underpants, and no shoes. He had a torn sock on his left foot, and the skin between his teeth suggested he was biting on his own hands to keep them awake, to stay on the tree, or to keep his cries quiet. Igor was found face up with his head towards the tent, suggesting he was one of the ones trying to make it back. His fists were clenched above the snow, his jacket was unbuttoned, and he had on no shoes, but he was wearing one cotton sock and one wool sock on different feet. He was a bluish-red color with dried blood on his lips, and his knuckles had brownish bruises like he was fighting, but he had no internal injuries. He was wearing a watch that stopped working at 531. Sinaida was about 2,000 feet from the tree, and she was a purple-red color and better dressed than the others around her. She had two hats, a long-sleeve undershirt, a sweater, a plaid shirt, and a torn sweater on top. She had on no shoes. Rustem was about 1,500 feet from the tree and was face down heading towards the tent. He was wearing a long-sleeve undershirt, a shirt on top of that, a sweater, two pairs of pants, four pairs of socks, and one boot on his right foot. His watch stopped working at 8.45, and he had a small crack in his skull, but it wasn't determined to be fatal. However, the bilateral injuries on his thighs, hands, and head suggested that he could have been repeatedly falling on his head at a weird angle that didn't cause damage to the back of his skull somehow. They weren't quite sure what caused that kind of pattern to his body. It wasn't self-inflicted, and the way the ice and snow were around him suggested he was still warm when he last fell. The rest of the group would not be discovered for more than two months. They were finally found on May 4th, under 13 feet of snow, in a ravine less than 300 feet further into the woods past the pine tree where the first group was found. Three of the four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that some of the clothing on those who had died first had been removed and used by the others. The four found in May shifted the narrative of the entire incident. Originally, it was like hypothermia got to them, and while there was some odd findings in the first group, it could be explained away. But not with this next group, right? So the snow melting in May caused a man walking the trail with his dog to notice branches laid down in a trail-like fashion. He followed it, and then less than 300 feet from where the others were found, he discovered a pile of branches over a snow den with black pants and half of a sweater belonging to Ludmilla. Now, when Ludmilla was found, she was wearing two sweaters, two long-sleeve shirts, a radioactive brown sweater that belonged to Georgie, and contained traces of radioactive material. She was lying on a natural ledge, and there was water flowing over her open mouth. Originally, and to this day, people say her tongue was ripped from her mouth, and honestly, the autopsy report does not explain why her tongue wasn't there, or if it was because of the river, or animals, etc. But in her stomach was a dark brown matter said to be coagulated blood, which some say indicate her heart was beating when her tongue was removed. Her cause of death was hemorrhaging to the right atrium of her heart, 
multiple fractured ribs, and internal bleeding. Now, Semyon and Ludmilla had similar direction and pattern of injuries, even though they were completely different builds and heights. Ludmilla had bilateral injuries to her ribs that were symmetrical, while Semyon had that same pattern only on the right side of his ribs. They both had hemorrhaging in the cardiac muscle and pleural cavity, which was caused by a large force while they were alive, but none of the tissue on their chest was damaged. It's said that they survived at least 20 minutes after the injuries, which are commonly found when you've been near a detonated bomb, explosion, or some kind of high-pressure impact. Semyon was wearing two hats, two shirts, a scarf, a sweater, a coat, socks, and leather burkas. He didn't die from the cold in the den, and he was also wearing a camera and holding a pen and notepad in his hands. When that was found, only one high-ranking official ever saw that notepad, and he said there was nothing on it, but it was never entered into evidence. That last camera with Samion was also a surprise because Yuri said that he knew there were four cameras in the group, but he didn't realize that Samion had a fifth. Now, Alexander's body was well insulated because he was wearing two shirts, two sweaters, an unbuttoned and unzipped ski jacket, and trousers. His sweater and trousers were found to be radioactive as well. His autopsy report said he had a broken nose, a deformed neck with open wounds behind his ear, and the autopsy did not expand on why the injuries were there or what caused them, and it did not mention his cause of death. Now on to Nikolai. His body was well protected, right? He and Samion were thought to already be outside when whatever caused this group to leave their tent happened due to how many layers they both had on. He was wearing a wool hat, gloves, socks, and sweater, so all of that was wool. He also had on two shirts, a fur jacket, and boots. He had cadaveric spots on his upper body and extremities and a deep multi-splintered fracture in his skull. And an accidental fall was ruled out for such a massive head injury. They said it more closely followed him being thrown in the air and his head impacting the rocks, because there was no tissue damage that would resemble someone hitting him in the head with a rock. So the group found at the bottom of the creek had all these massive fatal internal injuries, right, that left no outside tissue damage related to those injuries somehow. They did, however, have soft tissue damage to their head and face after they died. For example, Ludmilla was missing her tongue, eyes, part of the lips, and she also was missing facial tissue and a fragment of her skull. Simeon was missing his eyeballs, and Alexander was missing his eyebrows. It was also noted that there were no signs of sexual activity found on the two women in the group. And I mention that because some people believe that it was a motive in everything that happened that night. But according to the medical examiner, it was not. Now let's talk about the tent. The side of the tent was cut, right? But it was cut from the inside. They didn't leave from the entrance for some reason. And they left all nine backpacks by the tent filled with sweaters, coats, boots, blankets, and just overall thick winter clothing they could have used to keep warm. It also had their cameras, stove, food, and more. They had two pairs of skis standing upright in the snow by the tent, an ice pick, Igor's jacket, and a working flashlight was there too, sitting on top of several feet of snow. There was snow piled on the side of the tent, similar to if snow had been blown onto it, but not like an avalanche. There were eight to nine sets of footprints, 
all showing various footwear choices like I mentioned earlier, and those footprints were organized. No signs of running or panicking, and it showed some people veering off before joining the group again. They found other footprints, but due to how organized the original tent scene was, rescuers didn't think anyone was hurt or dead when they originally found the tent, so no one made note of what prints were the rescuers or not. So, you have suspicious injuries and causes of death, a relatively tame tent scene, and behavior that shows everyone was thinking pretty rationally. I mean, the second group that was found built a snow den and had taken clothes from the others to be able to withstand the cold. Obviously, there are so many questions, and journalists reporting on the available parts of the investigation files claim this was what it all stated. So first, six of the group members died of hypothermia and three of fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people nearby on Colat apart from the nine travelers, and the tent had been ripped open from within. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal, and traces from the camp showed that all group members left the site of their own accord on foot. Some levels of radiation were found on one victim's clothing, and there was no foul play as far as an outside party attacking them. Originally, people were blaming the indigenous Manzi people but the medical examiner said that the fatal injuries of that second group couldn't have been caused by humans because the force of the blows was too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. Then, release documents contained no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs. And lastly, there were no survivors. At the time, the official conclusion was that they died because of a natural force, and they shut the investigation in May of 1959 and classified the files. So obviously, following the suspicious event where nothing quite adds up at face value and the officials opened, shut, and threw away the key on this accident and basically told everyone to leave it alone, people couldn't leave it alone. And after it happened, another group of hikers about 30 miles south of the incident reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north on the night the group met their fate. Similar spheres were observed in Ivedell and surrounding areas regularly from February to March of 59. These sightings were seen by several independent witnesses, including people in the military and the meteorology service. These sightings were not noted in the 59 investigation, and the witnesses came forward years later. One of them was a former police officer who led the investigation in 59, and in 1990, he published an article with his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for what happened. He said that after the team reported that they had seen these flying spheres, he received direct orders from high-ranking officials to dismiss the claims. In 97, it was revealed that pictures from Georgie's camera were kept in the private archive of that same investigator. It was later donated to the Diatlov Foundation once it was founded in 1999. And the diaries of the group were released in 2009. And if you're watching the video version of this episode, that's where these pictures are coming from. So, the foundation said its mission is to continue investigating the case and to maintain the Dyatlov Museum to preserve the memory of the dead hikers. In July 2016, a memorial plaque was inaugurated dedicated to Yuri Yudin, who was considered the sole survivor of the expedition group since he was the one who had to turn back. He later died in 2013 at the age of 75. Now, let's break this down. Okay, so the original official theory that they had about all of this 
was that the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because of an avalanche covering the entrance to the tent or because they were scared an avalanche was coming. They figured it was better to repair the slit in the tent than being buried alive under tons of snow. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help slow the oncoming avalanche. In the dark, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, which caused the burned hands, and the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed. But since it was too cold, they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the dark. And at some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but it was believed that the group of four whose bodies were most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under 13 feet of snow, which they say is more than enough to account for the compelling natural force that the medical examiner hinted at before. Ludmilla's tongue was said to have likely been removed by scavengers and just predators out in the wilderness. People were leaning towards aliens or some kind of extraterrestrial event, right? But there was also a large group that felt like it was a Soviet Union military exercise gone wrong or some kind of pressure weapon that caused the injuries because they were experimenting with those things at the time. It didn't help with how quickly they closed and classified the investigation, right? I mean, governments usually do that when something is wrong, or they've messed up, or some other version of that scenario, and they don't want the public to know the truth. So with all the speculation happening over decades and decades, in 2019, Russian authorities reopened the investigation into the incident, but they said that they were only going to entertain three theories. An avalanche, a slab avalanche, or a hurricane. So, the new theory released in 2020 was that an avalanche was the official cause of death for the Dyatlov group in 1959. This was backed up by independent computer simulations that pointed to the group's actions no longer being irrational. Because originally people thought that people were unclothed because of overheating. When you have hypothermia or you're experiencing it, you start to feel too hot. So people that are going through that event will usually just start to take off their clothes to cool off, which ends up obviously speeding up their death because now they have no clothing to help keep them warm. But that was the original theory. And obviously, I've explained that that's not why they were missing clothes. It's because the others took them for their own warmth. So the snow slab that they believed caused the deaths of everyone would have made loud cracks and rumbles as it came towards the tent, making an avalanche seem imminent. So they say the group did everything textbook. They had an emergency evacuation to ground that would be safe from an avalanche. They took shelter in the woods, started a fire, and dug a snow cave. If they were less experienced, they may have stayed near the tent, dug it out, and survived. But since avalanches are the biggest risks in mountains in the winter, the more experience you have, the more you fear them. So they were saying that the skier's expertise is what doomed them and led to their deaths. Now... There's a bunch of evidence contradicting the avalanche theory altogether. One of those is that the location of the incident didn't have any obvious signs of an avalanche taking place. An avalanche would have left patterns and debris all over the area, and the bodies found within a month of that avalanche were covered with a very, very thin layer of snow. If there had been an avalanche strong enough to sweep away that second group that was farther away and cause all those injuries, then the first group's body would have had as severe of injuries as the second group, and the tree line would have been more severely damaged. There have also been over 100 expeditions to that area since the incident, and none of them have ever reported conditions that could cause an avalanche. Now, 
An analysis of the terrain and the slope showed that even if there was a very specific avalanche in that area, the path would have gone past the tent. And since the tent collapsed from the side and not in a horizontal direction, it's not believed that's what truly caused it. There's also the fact that Dyatlov was an experienced skier and Samion was much older. With his military background and his studying for a master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking, neither of these two were likely to camp somewhere in the path of a potential avalanche. The footprint patterns leading away from the tent were calm and inconsistent with a single person, let alone a group of people running in panic from either real or imagined danger. All of the footprints leading away from the tent were consistent with people walking at a normal pace. So, there are other theories that scientists have come up with that include blaming extremely bad weather and lack of experience on the group leader in such conditions, which led to the selection of a dangerous campsite, blaming the group for splitting up rather than building a temporary camp down in the forest to try and survive through the night, and negligence of the 59 investigators for not being thorough, leading to their report creating more questions than answers and inspiring numerous conspiracy theories. Scientists were leaning towards slabs or catabatic winds, making it impossible to remain in the tent because even though they're rare, they're extremely violent. So with the wind theory, the hikers would have covered the tent with snow and sought shelter behind the tree line, hence part of the tent being covered in snow. On top of the tent, there was the flashlight left turned on so that they could make their way back to the tent once the wind stopped. This theory says that the group made two shelters, one of which collapsed, leaving the four hikers buried with the severe injuries. I kind of like that theory, but it's not my top one. There's a lot with it that I just don't agree with. There are other theories about the testing of radiological weapons, which is based on the discovery of radioactivity on some of the clothing and the bodies having orange skin and gray hair, as reported by relatives. I don't completely buy that theory, because the radioactivity would have been on multiple people and probably everyone's clothing. Honestly, I lean towards something extraterrestrial because of the orbs, or the military doing experiments and just not realizing people were up there that night. Those are personally my top two theories. So, here is my theory. I think something caused them to leave the tent quickly, but not in a panic. Maybe the two skiers that were the most well-dressed were outside, and they saw the orbs or strange lights, or heard the experiments and went to check it out. They came back and told the others. I do not believe they thought it was an avalanche, because if they would have, they would have grabbed the skis and they would have been left sitting upright in the snow. They didn't go towards the storage at all, but towards the trees, and it wasn't in a panic. I think they went to the trees and started a fire to wait out whatever was going on. Some of the branches were used for the fire, and I think some were damaged from someone climbing up to keep watch for whatever caused them to leave their tent in the first place. They were all together at the fire, and then the danger caused some of them to leave the campfire and go deeper into the woods while Yuri and Georgie climbed the tree. Or perhaps they volunteered to keep watch while the others went to make a permanent shelter with that snow den. Either Georgie and Yuri became exhausted and eventually fell and died, or maybe they were terrified of what was going on and trying to keep quiet, hence the hand biting. Or maybe they were there so long that it was the only way to keep their hands awake. Either way, something caused them to fall. And eventually, Igor, Zenaida, and Rustem returned to check on them and found them dead. They took some of their clothing and were going to get supplies from the tent when the danger hit them again, leading to their deaths. 
So there you have the first group that was found. The second group decided to stay in the den where the clothing was originally found when Igor and the others didn't return. They eventually went to check on them when they needed more clothing, and seeing their friends dead, they took what they could and went back to the den. I think Samion wrote what was going on and took pictures on his camera before the danger, orbs, military experiments, or whatever, impacted them and killed the remaining skiers. But what do you guys think happened? I know everyone is always so opinionated on this topic. Leave your theories for me to read and don't forget to follow or subscribe because the story in an upcoming episode is even more mysterious than this. Stay safe and I'll see you next time. Bye guys.